In a moment, back to Gene Shepard. This is WOR Radio, your station for news. Well, let's practice. Hooray for Ted Malley! All right, somebody lead the cheer. Say T-E-T-M-A-L-L-E-Y. Let's go! T-E-T-M-A-L-L-E-Y. Malley! 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 Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to a meeting of the Ted Malley Fan Club. <laughs> Coming to you direct from the limelight in the heart of Greenwich Village. And now, once again, let's go, gang. T E D M A L L E Y. Malley, Malley, Malley. One of America's great unsung cultural heroes. What Malley does to a newscast, Mozart did to simple musical notes. <laughs> oh, wow. All right, gang, you ready to go? By the way, I wonder how many guys tuning in here have the vague suspicion and the vague sense of loss that they have missed a demonstration. <laughs> Oh, yeah, you know, that, you, you realize that certain universities are now giving courses in demonstration. <laughs> One and two. Oh, yeah, I, I have a friend over in, in Newark who's made a tremendous business. He sells machine-made, tailor-custom, hand, hand-written signs for demonstrations. And his best-selling model is a simple statement. All it says is, Shame. <laughs> you ought to try carrying that through your office tomorrow morning. Just walk with it. Shame. You know? I'll tell you another good one. Is one that simply says, How long? <laughs> Big question, you know. Another one that always gets people is just to simply hold up a sign and say, Why? I think my favorite demonstration sign, though, is a sign that I saw out in front of the U.N., one day. In fact, I got tangled up in it. How many of you ever been sucked in to a, a some kind of a big demonstration that's been going on? And I'm walking past the UN, nice quiet day, and here's a bunch of guys with signs. Just walking around, you know, guys with beards, a couple of guys with overalls on. And one guy's got a sign that says, I'm for peace. He's just walking around. He's got that nice, bland look of a peace lover on his face. I'm for peace. And I couldn't help but do it. I had to ask him. I stopped him and I said, uh, who isn't? He said, what do you mean, who isn't? He goes on past. I said, well, who isn't? You, uh, you, you, your sign seems to imply that nobody else is for peace. And he turns to me and he says, all right, Mac, I'll show you who's for peace, wise guy. Whoa! <laughs> He was going to show me he was more for peace than I was. <laughs> Got to bust my head in to do it. Well, I've wondered about these things, see, because I suspect that the deep inner subterranean urges that make all of us do what we do come from the, the treehouse and the cave syndrome. The treehouse guys are forever fighting the cave guys. And the cave guys are always burrowing deeper. Well, one time, as I said, Flick and Schwartz and Bruner and myself decide to dig a cave. It's Saturday, and we begin to dig. Each one of us has his shovel from the coal bin back home. We're just digging away, you know, digging deeper. It's sand. Have you, have you ever dug into real virgin sand? As you dig deeper, the color gets darker and it gets orange. And then you start hitting loam, you know, you get various levels of dark black dirt. Then you hit little rocks, and we're digging deeper and deeper, and now we're up to our waist. And we begin to hit grubs. How many of you know that thrill of knocking down some sand? There's a grub looking at you. You dig deeper and deeper. And now we're up to our heads. 
And this thing is about, I'd say, seven feet across, big square. We've been digging since early morning in a vacant lot. And now it's really getting to look like a cave. You know, you can sit down in the bottom of it, and it's kind of warm down there. And you can smell the earth. It smells sweet and wet. You can smell worms. You can, yeah, you can smell roots. It's a great smell, you know. And then we start patting it out, you know, making a floor. And we start putting bricks down in it. We lay bricks down the bottom. And then we climb out and we get pieces of corrugated tin and cardboard and lay it over the top, you know, one after the other. Pieces of gunny sack. We start putting dirt on top of that and sod. And all we had now was a passageway that led into the cave. And it's dark inside. Pitch, roaring, sullen black. Well, I had... I had a kerosene lantern that we had had in the basement for years. And I tore home and I brought that lantern back. We light it, you know, we're sitting in the cave. What a great feeling. You know, this is the feeling of being underground now, really. The rest of the world's gone. Very exciting. I'm sitting there. It's dark. Got that little lantern. Schwartz is looking at me. Flick is looking at both of us. Bruner slumping over sideways. All four of us are sitting there. And Flick says, what do we do? So I don't know. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to make myself a room. Flick says, a room? I says, yeah, I'm going to dig into the side here, make a room, my own room, see? You guys can do what you want to do. So I start digging into the side, see? Well, this, this is, is, by the way, part of the cave digging urge to dig deeper always deeper. And so I start digging in, you know, I put it into the pail, carry it out, pour it up, back deeper. And now I've got a little room that I can sit in by myself. See, I can look out, see? And I can see them all sitting out there with their kerosene lamp. I say, hey, Schwartz, bring me the crackers. We had a little box of crackers we brought in. See, I says, bring me the crackers in my room. <laughs> Just hand them in. He hands in the crackers. I'm sitting there eating crackers. And I see over on the other side, Bruner. I can see Bruner's behind. He is digging in the other side. And he's going down. Down. Flick is already eyeing the other wall. Well, within a half an hour, all four of us had disappeared from the central cavern. And we're digging deeper and deeper. It is now night. We come back upstairs we stand there and look at our cave. <laughs> it's our cave. Okay, listen, I'll see you tomorrow morning as soon as I can get out of the house. At the crack of dawn, all four of us, with the weedies still wet on our chins. <laughs> we are underground and digging in further and deeper. And the mania set in. I'm telling you, we started to dig like nuts. Further and further. And each guy, you know, is making a little cave inside of his cave. Digging deeper and deeper. Well, as you dig deeper, I'm going to give you a warning. There is a moment that you cross, a very crucial moment. It's the moment when you begin to fear your cave. Yeah, you know, you're sitting in your little dark hole way out, you know, it crosses. And all of a sudden you look around. There's a passageway that goes out this way. And off in the distance, you can hear Schwartz whimpering now, you know. Hey, Schwartz! You hear, yeah, what? What do you want? Hey, Flick, you out there, Flick? Where's Flick? Hey, it's Flick out there. Where's Flick? Flick's gone out of John, see? And we sit in our cave for about an hour and holler out at each other. Hey, Bruner! Ain't this great, Bruner? <laughs> You hear Bruno, yeah, wow, we. <laughs> and our cave is cold and damp and black as the ace of spades. Well, I started to dig further down. Schwartz has got a big L-shaped thing he's got. Bruner has just dug like a clam-shaped thing, and he's laying flat out in his, you know. <laughs> he, he just digs a little hole, see? 
whereas, whereas Flick is digging straight down. I'm burrowing in a Z fashion, zigzag. Each guy is doing his own bit. And once in a while, I'd come out and I'd look at Schwartz's, you know, and say, oh, it's pretty good, Schwartz. I'd look at Flick's. Flick would look at mine, dig it deeper and deeper. It is now about four o'clock in the afternoon. We have been eating crackers and peanut butter. All morning, see, all afternoon. We're living in our cave. I am digging straight ahead. This is one of the great scary moments of my whole life. It's black, and already now I'm beginning to feel a little nervous in the cave all the time. Digging, digging. A worm comes out. Here's a rock. Digging, digging, scratching. All of a sudden, the ground ahead of me just collapsed like that. And I saw a sight I'll never forget. I, I, all I know is that I let out one yell. Just, ah! I had my flash. Right ahead of me is a ball about the size of a basketball of snakes. They go, ah! They come down. I had hit a snake, a snake pit or something. This ball of snakes. Out I go, Schwartz, snakes, brother. And you never saw anything like four kids trying to get out of a cave. I'm telling you, it was like it was like a mob scene in a coal bin. <laughs> Out we go, and 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 there we were, standing on top of the ground, just like that. Snakes. There were a ball of snakes down there. And Schwartz takes the light and looks down. Get back. A cave. Let's go back in, Flick. Let's kill him or something. Oh, not me, Mac. Oh, no. Oh, no. Well, come on, Bruner. If you'll go in with me, I'll go. Bruner says, go ahead. And then Schwartz says, why don't you go? Well, gee whiz. I mean, it's your cave, too, you know. And there wasn't one of us who would go near that. Those snakes. Have you ever seen 15 snakes all wrapped in a big ball? Oh, boy. I mean, they may have been garter snakes, but they, they outnumbered us. I'll tell you, and they looked about the size of baseball bats. You know, I, eyes are going like that. I couldn't forget it. And so Schwartz says, let's go down the ball field. Come on. I said, yeah, come on, let's go. And we go down to the ball field and start playing ball. Our cave laid out there for two days. And finally, we busted it in, smashed it down, jumping on it, you know, having fun. But the real secret was we were scared out of our skulls of the very thing we made. I suspect that's true of our civilization. We have dug this fantastic cave. You know, there was a time when old, you know, those, those two Neanderthal men, Og and Charlie. <laughs> Oh, there had to be a time. You know, a friend of mine is a, is a famous, is a famous archaeologist, anthropologist, and he says, you know, some of the great moments in history have never been recorded, but they must have happened. And here's Charlie and Og sitting by the shore of this antediluvian lake. Shut up, will you? They're sitting at this antediluvian lake. Both of them. You know, there was a time when man's brow was uncluttered. Nothing, nothing, nothing went, he, Ideas hadn't been invented. Worries hadn't been invented. Nothing. They just stood. Alk and Charlie, sitting side by side, down on their haunches, looking out over that ancient lake. They didn't even have trees yet. There were no, just clouds and wind blowing. Alk is sitting there. And this little crowd all lived by, by the side of the lake and all together in one cave. Millennia went by. One og melded into the next og. One Charlie disappeared to be replaced by another Charlie. This went on millennia after millennia, just sitting down. Once in a while, they'd, they'd get up, see, and og would go down to the shore of the lake, up to his knees in the water, and grab some clams. They were clam nuts, you know. He'd bring them back like this. Oh, jar clam. You know what? By the way, one of the oldest words in all languages is clam. See, it's a single-syllable word. 
They didn't even, they had words were not invented. And, and, and Charlie would bring and say, clam. <laughs> the reason he did that was his knee hurt. See, and when he would go out, it just involuntarily would come out, clam. Uh, oh. And Charlie would take a clam and they both hit him together. <laughs> this is one of the ancient sounds. One of the primal sounds. The sound of man lapping up a, a raw clam. Even to this day, we're, we're, we're really clam hungry. See? Well, this went on. Eon after eon. It was a simple life. And then came that moment. Og looked at Charlie. He doesn't know how it happened. Nobody knows why it happened. Og looked at Charlie and said, uh, It took them at least three months to react to each other in those days. A couple of months go by, and Charlie goes, Og mm. <laughs> looks out over the lake, and then he said it. Me. Me split. <laughs> Charlie looks at him two months later, says, split what? Hog says, me go. Out there. And he picked up his clam shells and moved off. Off over the hill, past the woods, to start his own place. And that was how Trenton came into being. <laughs> yes, and that's how it all started, because you see, the minute that Og moved away from Charlie, they had to put a road in between the two. And then Charlie's kid moved away from him, and they had to put a road in between him. Until eventually, we've got this fantastic thing with 72 billion people all with roads crisscrossing, the Pennsylvania Turnpike, the Jersey Turnpike, all of us going back and forth, frantically visiting Og, visiting Charlie, visiting Charlie's son, visiting Og's kid brother. We have, we have built this incredible cave, and now we're all scared of it. Do you ever have that sneaking feeling of fear when you're whipping along the Turnpike and you're playing Turnpike tag, you know? <laughs> Guys are whistling past, and you're whistling past, you know. It's like, oh, watch this, baby. <laughs> you sneak in in front of them, and all of a sudden that sign comes up that says, pay toll ahead. <laughs> pay toll ahead. What a great epitaph. Can you imagine that on somebody's headstone? Yes, as a matter of fact, have you ever had that sneaking fear as, as, as you come up to that pay toll ahead that you have not only not got the exact change, you're broke. Yeah, you know, by the way, wouldn't that be a great scene in a, in a, in a, in a, in a uh, existentialist movie? A scene of heaven. All of a sudden, the hero is hit by a Mack truck. Boom! The chutes open up. And there's a great big sign that says, pay toll ahead. And God turns out to be a toll taker. And you arrive and it says, exact change lane to the left. And all you see this whole crowd going into the exact change lane. And they're throwing their quarters right into the bucket. Have you ever missed one of those buckets? Have you ever had that embarrassing moment when your last quarter, you throw it and it bounces up, down, hits the top of the car? and rolls under <laughs> and that red light says stop ahead of you and there are 8,000 cars stretched out behind you all the way to Harrisburg and you get out on your hands and knees and crawl under and the horns start blowing what a great vision of hell you can't find your quarter and you know it's there and you're underneath there and up there standing in that great toll pipe that great toll-collecting house of the sky is God himself. And he says, no change. <laughs>
no change. And down the chute you go to that fiery furnace. Well, there are all kinds of fiery furnaces. And somebody here tonight said, tell an army story. Well, now, all of us know about the army and the world, and it's all connected with that toll pike and that exact change lane. You know, from the very beginning of your life, there are kids that have the exact change. And there's the rest of us who have to break a $20 bill. Or we have a dollar. And we have to get in that big, long line. Oh, this is a truth. And so it is with the Army. You know, I think one of the reasons why people like Army stories is that they're so close to real life. All of it's stripped away. All the, all the crud is stripped away. You know, all these guys sitting down here with their suits. Look at them. They all look alike. But each one has a rank. And you can't tell what it is here. This guy here looks like he could be a major general. He's probably a PFC. Yes, sir. And, 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 and there's a little short fat guy with glasses sitting over there who looks like a born corporal. He is a lieutenant colonel. And that's the sneaky thing about civilian life. It, everything is all covered up and you can phony it up. Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, I, I, how many of us have developed a, uh, the, the classic cocktail party stance? You know, this thing with the foot out like this, the glass in the hand. Here you are, a born PFC. Your underwear has stamped on its seat the number of a born private. Yes, sir. And you're standing there pretending like you're a captain. You're in the Time Life building. You have stolen, you have stolen an invitation to one of these jazzy cocktail parties and you're standing there. You know, with that look, that bland look, got your gut pulled in, your martinis gurgling there and you sip a little bit. All around you are the rest of the phonies. You see? And, and you, and of course you think that they're all the real colonels. And you go over to the hors d'oeuvre trader, you know, and you take one of the little frankfurters and you take one of the little hors d'oeuvres with the anchovies, you know, you put it on the plate, you're carrying your drink around, you're standing there, you know. And then you meet this chick. Oh, boy, there's nothing like a cocktail party chick in New York. Now, I'm talking about the promotional cocktail party. Now, most of you, when you think of a cocktail party, you think of, of Mrs. Simpson having a party in the afternoon. I'm talking about the thing, that, which is the major industry of New York. That's the promotional afternoon cocktail party that's given to promote some unknown product or some big show that's going to open. Nobody ever mentions, incidentally, the product or the show at the party and it's the same crowd they just move in a body day after day from one from one room at the Waldorf to the next room at the Americana they just like in lockstep they move their hand permanently in the martini grip you know and they've got this yellow complexion that comes from all those hors d'oeuvres you know with the little things in it they walk back and forth like this and you know, one of the first things that happens when you get in there is you find out that they all know each other. They all do. You get, they all know. And there's always these tall, thin girls with these indeterminate jobs. They're always called in production. <laughs> there's one right there. <laughs> they're in production, see? And, and they're all tall, thin, their hair is all brushed, you know. They look like these chicks out of the Times, you know. You know on the Times, back in the society pages where it always says, betrothed. You know? <laughs> and underneath it, it says, Bernice C.G. Malay of Westport, Rhode Island, Westbury, Kentucky, and Palm Beach. How would you like to have three addresses? And a father with four middle names. And they're always engaged to a lieutenant commander in the Navy who is going to rejoin his father's law firm upon his discharge. Well, these are the chicks you see. And they walk around these cocktail parties, and you're there. How many of you have that terrible urge? You're standing there. And she's standing there. 
And she's wearing the clothes that you see in Vogue. They, you wonder whether they do the thing that, you know, all the things that ordinary people do. You know? <laughs> you just wonder, you know, the little thing goes through, but they're so clean and brushed. and You can't imagine them doing anything like that, you know? Just can't. And all the while, you're trying to think, where is it? In these cocktail party rooms, they don't have the ordinary things that are marked male and female or woman and man. You know, you're standing there and you just keep walking back and forth. <laughs> you've had seven martinis. It's the only place you've gone to in weeks where they just give you all the drinks you want. They've got everything there, you know. They've got gin and tonic and you've tried them all. You've got nine of them down your belt now. And everything is beginning to move slightly to the left and to the right. And by the way, those girls all look like they should be named Electra. <laughs> and you know, they're cool and clean. You look at them and you know, you have a feeling that these things are olives. <laughs> they're human martinis. Very dry. And you get that urge to just reach out and just once let it go, you know, just grab one of them, you know. <laughs> but there's something inside you that says, no, no. No. And then there's another thing, a little gray furry creature that says, go, man, go. <laughs> and all the while you stand and discuss Kierkegaard. <laughs> and so you have modern life. Very hard to detect one way or the other, which way it's going to flop. Speaking of flops, this is W-O-R-A-M and F-M New York. <laughs> well, the army... I'm in the army about 20 minutes. You got the scene? Now, all of us know we've seen pictures, we've seen movies, we've read books about the army, but none of the real things that happen in the army, really the real things, are ever in novels that Norman Mailer writes. They just ain't. No, the, the daily life of the army is a very far different thing. And I'm in the army about three days at this point, very confused, terrible, you know. And my shoes hurt because they're new. I've got my uniform on for the first time and it scratches, you know. It's a very funny feeling. And we've been getting shots. We've been getting tests. They've been giving us examinations. And now we're ready. We're armies. We're in the, we're in the army now. We're about to be shipped. This is the moment. And the whole barracks is full of guys with new suits, new shoes, big brand new barracks bags. And we're waiting for, by the way, we're waiting for the one mystical thing that the army has, the orders. How many of you remember that phrase, the orders are cut, Mac, nothing I can do. <laughs> you know, you go rushing down to the day room or the orderly room, why, why are you sending me here, what's this? Came down from headquarters. The orders are cut. I got nothing to do with it. Have you had the feeling that in your own life, the orders have been cut? Yeah. yeah. And they've come down. Shut up, will you? <laughs> and they've come down from some headquarters, and there is no going back. No going back. Well, I'm standing around with a bunch of kids, you know. We're, all, we're just all 17 years old, 18 years old. We'd never heard of these things, cutting orders, that kind of stuff. We thought a cap. when you think of orders, you always think of a captain coming out and saying, attention, all of you are going there, you know. There's something else. So we're all fooling around the barracks waiting. They said, stay in there until your orders come through. We're eating candy bars, yeah. being tough. You know, you're in the Army three days and you start using words that you only saw written on, the, on walls, you know. <laughs> You'd be surprised how hard they come out at first, you know. You, you see this corporal, he uses these words, you know, so easy and free. And you, you'd be surprised the first time you say one of them. Your foot hurts. And it sticks in your mouth. You say, oh, go like that. Yeah. Yeah, gee, I said it, you know. Well, then you say, I'll try it again. You say, oh, let's all go wow off. You say, you know what I mean, just sort of fool around, you know. Well, this is an all this is an all purpose universal word that's used in the army. 
It's like the universal solvent. It does everything. It solves every problem. It solves every problem. It's a verb. It's an adverb. It's a conjunction. It's, it's a gerund. It's every kind of word, see? In fact, we even used to march in formation making that word. <laughs> Once in a while when the Air Force was flying over, we'd say, form the word, men! <laughs> and they'd see it, you know, they'd look down. <laughs> and <laughs> you're, you're laughing? Listen, I saw that actually done. <laughs> These are things you never see in, the, in, in you know, these, these episodes of combat with Rip Torn. I'll never forget how it started. The second lieutenant of this, this platoon that I was in at one point was part of the company, Company K. And we are out, we are out on a maneuver out in the boondocks down in Florida. See? And all the time, every five minutes, these, these B-29s would go over, you know. Big B-29s. And incidentally, are you aware that everybody in all the armed services, no matter what they tell you, have a fantastic envy for the Air Force? They hate the Air Force. The Air Force has got it made. They wear their hats in a snotty way. They even have a different color of the uniform, you know, and they've got a song. And the song, off we go into the wild blue yonder. Are you aware that the Signal Corps had a song? They never sang it on the radio. In fact, we never even sang it. We're in a signal where they had something like, let us go, pick up your pliers and your wire wrench, or lay the wire from here to there. You know. So there was no esprit de corps in our outfit. And we are, we are attached to an Air Corps place. You know, we're attached to an Air Corps up and all these hot pilots would watch us go marching past every day. And we had a second lieutenant who had been a washed-out cadet. There is nothing angrier than a guy who didn't make it as a flyer. And so we would go out to lay wire every morning, and these B-29s, these T-33s would go past. And one day we're taking a five-minute break, and Lieutenant Cherry says, Hey, he says, I got an idea. <laughs> he says, listen, Gasser, you stand over there. <laughs> he says, Edward, you get behind him. And uh, any of you guys ever go to any football games? You remember when they used to spell U of M out? Well, fellas, we're going to spell out a single word. <laughs> <laughs> well, within five minutes, we had the greatest formation that was ever seen in the U.S. Army. We're all standing there. It's the, it's the one formation we all gladly got into. You know? All right, Charlie, come on. You're at the top of the sea. Get over there, you know. And, and, and so we're standing like this. And, and we're waiting, see. We're all waiting among all the boondocks, you know for an airplane to come by. <laughs> and sure enough, a flight of P-47s, you know. This fighter, these were real hot rocks, you know, from back at Tampa. This flight of P-47s, they even flew snottily in our wings. You know. <laughs> like, you know, look at me, man. I'm in it. And they come, wow, and this big V, and we're all standing at attention down there. Right in the middle of a great big patch of yellow sand. <laughs> well, the, well, the lead plane, you know, we're all sort of sneaking like this. And the lieutenant is, is down here. He has formed the dot on an exclamation point. <laughs> well, you should have seen that formation. The lead plane goes, and then all of a sudden, went, and we saw the whole thing sort of peel off. I wonder what they said on their intercom radios. And one by one, they came past and they buzz us. They go, wow. And we just sort of wiggle. <laughs> you won't see that, by the way, in combat. <laughs> 
Well, I'll tell you, I'm in the Army. Of course, this is all ahead of me by that time, you know. I, I, I'm, I'm in the Army about three days. You got the scene now? I'm still indoctrinated by Don Amici. I still keep thinking of Errol Flynn giving them hell in Burma, you know. And I, they don't do any of this stuff that I see going on around me. And one moment, just like that, I was indoctrinated into the Army, the real Army. I've got a brand new suit. Remember that. And you know, you're so proud of even your fatigues when you first get in. You're proud of your socks. You know, you're proud of your underwear. Are you aware, any of you, that they give the Army underwear? You know, they even get the wax underwear. I was wondering what kind they got, you know? I mean, you know, and we've got this underwear. We've got these big T-shirts and everything else under us, and the big shoes and the wool socks. You feel a foot and a half taller. Real proud, you know, my suit. Got a couple of little things up here. One says U.S. The other's got cross flags. And then it happened. The PA system in the barracks says, the following men report to the orderly room on the double, Shepard, Gasser, and they go down the line. I said, okay, I'll go down. We stand in front of the orderly room, wait. The orderly room, incidentally, is the main office of a company. That's where the captain is. That's where all the hell originates. <laughs> Whenever you get called down the orderly room, look out, boy. It's the first time I thought, you know, it was kind of good. They were going to give me something or something. <laughs> You know, I'm going to get a paper or a badge or something. So I stand down there, and out comes this little guy, the first one I'd ever seen. I didn't know it was a historic moment. This type was going to pursue me for three and a half long years. Now, you know, you don't think in terms of, of moments where things begin. You know, you're all with people here, each one of you. Can you remember the first instant you met that person? Little realizing what was to follow. This table here has got 19 kids. And they wound up in the limelight. Can you imagine them foreseeing that, that first instant when he's at the library and she's walking along? He says, wow, what a chick. Holy smokes. And she's pretending she's ignoring him. And the next thing you know, look at them. Here they are. Well, that's the way life is. And I was about to see one of the hated characters in all of the army. And you never hear about this guy in these little stories about the army and the GIs. He comes tearing down out of the orderly room and he's got green glasses on. There's a type in the army that wears green glasses at night. <laughs> yeah, they wear green glasses. You never see their eyes. And they wear their hat pulled down, way down, cocked like this with the back end going up. And they've got their shirts tailored. Real sharp. And they've got sharp pants. And he came tearing out. He says, all right, all six of you, attention. He just looks back and forth. All six of us are standing like this. We have been, three days ago, I had visited Miss Snyder at Hammond High, my homeroom teacher. I had told her I'm going in the army. And she says, come back safe, Gene. And now here I am. It's starting. And he just stands there, looks he said, all right, all you guys are in the army for the first time. I'm a duty corporal. Well, you know, so, so, you know, we all got our duty to perform. You've got your duty, we got ours, you know. I'm a duty corporal and for the duration plus six, Whenever you hear the word duty, corporal, you snap. I mean, he's got no badges. He's got no bars. And, and you know, it's funny. When you're out of the army and not in, you have a kind of disdain for guys who are not officers, don't you? You think, you're like, they haven't made it, you know, and you see one little stripe, and you think, well, you know, this is just a PFC. Let me tell you, in the Army, I have seen PFCs run mess halls like Hitler ran Germany. <laughs> I have never seen anything like it. You know, up to this point, I, have, I had planned by the end of the first month to be a lieutenant. <laughs> I figured it would take a month. 
I mean, if I got in a bad outfit and they didn't get my, you know, application, they didn't see me right away, I figured it'd take a month. I figured by the end of six months, I'd probably be a captain. And here's this crummy little guy with one stripe, see? And I know he's not a corporal. Well, let me tell you, the duty corporal does not depend on rank. He is the guy that dishes out the you-know-what. And I'm serious, he dishes it out. And I'm standing there in my new suit. He says, all right, you on the end? Me. He says, you go down to the mess hall and ask him where the grease trap is. <laughs> you, next guy, you go down to the latrine, tell him you want to work on the bowls. <laughs> He's got plenty of bowls down there, don't worry about it. And one by one, we peeled off, you know, and I had, I had no idea what the grease trap is. Now, my mother had a grease trap at home. It was this little sieve in the sink. You remember that little thing, and once in a while, she'd pull it out, and an apple core would fly out, or, or she'd pull it out, you know, and the old peas would fall out, you know, and she'd put it into the, into the garbage. That's what I thought they were going to send me down to clean the sink, you know, the little thing. Oh, sure, I don't want to do this. So I said, gee whiz, I sure got a break, you know, I'm going out to get the grease trap, you know. <laughs> so, I'm heading to the mess hall, you know. Well, you know, I'm in the army. I'm going to do a duty, see. Well, I arrive in this mess hall, and here is my first mess sergeant. Now, mess sergeants generally look like Wallace Beery. They really do who's been debauched. All mess sergeants are fat. They have been living off steaks for 20 years. And they, they even control the officers, seriously, because the officers come around and peek into the mess hall window and hope that the mess sergeant will give them a steak. So here he is, this big slob. I come, I come walking in, you know, and, 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 and I'm used to the convention that you see in the movies. Have you noticed that all first sergeants really are basically lovable? I mean, all of you know old Phil Silvers. He's basically lovable. And, you know, I'm ready to, you know, come in and have a couple of little funnies with Wallace Beery here, see? So I come in, I say, Sergeant, uh, the duty corporal just sent me down to see about the grease trap. And he took one look at me. He said, ah, okay, so you're it, huh? <laughs> Go back and get your fatigues, you nut. You can't clean out the grease trap in your old D's. I said, fatigues? Oh, sure, okay, go find I put on my sharp, beautiful green fatigues. I come back. And he says, all right, out to the grease trap. It's out there on the other side and down. Take the top off and don't come out until you got it cleaned all the way down to the bottom. Well, do you know what a grease trap is, friends? A grease trap is a hole in the ground that is about yay high. It is full of G-R-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-S-E. And it's full of other things which I cannot say. And you have to clean it out with your hands, with your uniform, with your soul getting sullied by the instant. It gets hot and smelly. And at the bottom are coffee grounds that were left over from the Boer War. <laughs> and you dig further and you go past the Spanish-American War and then you, you begin to hit the edges of the Civil War and there's old potato peelings down there and finally you hit the Revolution. You find old musket balls and you find false teeth left by George Washington. <laughs> and you're rotten and crummy and six and a half months later you crawl out. You're skinny... You're worn out. But boy, I'll tell you one thing you are. You are in the army. <laughs> you are in the army. And you know, it's funny. After I finished the grease trap, my first grease trap, I, boy, I'll tell you, you have no idea how a, a grease trap cleaner smells. <laughs> you know, you come walking back down in the company area and you're just covered with crud. You walk sort of stiff-legged, you know. <laughs> So to keep yourself away from yourself, you know. You don't even want to touch yourself, you don't walk like this, you know. And your pants sort of creak and drip, and your shoes are all dirty, and it's coming out of your hair. And, and you can hear as you go past each barracks, you can hear the sharp intake of breath. Old Shep is coming back to barracks D, see. And then you begin to have the fantastic superior feeling of a guy who has done an absolutely rotten, cruddy job. You feel, gee, I did it. <laughs> I sure did it, boy. 
you walk into the barracks and you walk down to the center aisle and all the guys are laying out and somebody says, oh, wow, open a window. Boy, do you stink, Shepard. Oh, wow. And you turn around and for the first time, that four-letter word comes out, natural. <laughs> you turn off, baby. You walk in. You just lay it out. You know, it's all part of that great education. Well, <laughs> you want to hear, you know, it's funny. You talk about that, that great education in the Army. I would love to see a 15 or a half hour TV segment of one of these things simply called The Grease Trap. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to see Tab Hunter up to his neck in it? How would you like to see Tony Perkins digging in it? Or, or, you know, speaking of grease traps, I'll never forget, how many of you have ever thought about the relationship between the army and the wax? And it ain't exactly what you think. <laughs> it really isn't. And I remember a group of wax, the first group of wax we ever saw. We'd heard about them. We had seen wax in the newsreels. You know, there's always pictures of wax marching in formation. And we were looking at it all the time, you know, in the, in the post-theater, we'd see wax. It was, you couldn't believe it, you know, it's kind of like you're looking at eyes. You wondered whether they did the same things to the wax that they do to us. And you can't, no, they can't, no, they can't. How many of you remember at three o'clock in the morning, the whistle's blowing? And out, out, out in the company street, the guy's saying, All right, fellow helmet liners! Raincoats and GI shoes, nothing else. The doctor will be here in a minute. Let's go. It's three in the morning, you know. You'll have to explain that to her when you get home. And then they say, cough. Well, you look at the wax and you wonder, you know. And you see these wax marching past. And you never quite ever think that they're real. And then the word came down. It, it, I, I'm sitting in the I'm sitting in the day room, next to the piano. Are you, uh, have you ever wondered what they do in their time off in the army? Just sit, you know. You sit next to the piano. The piano doesn't work. I used to sit by the hour and just listen to the Coke machine. <laughs> you know, you get so you kind of like the sound of it. You know, you'd wait and you'd you'd kind of wait for it to turn off and on. You know, you'd. It, it, it builds up a dramatic tension. It's, it'd go, and it'd stop. You know, you'd sit there and you'd wait. And you'd say, you know, it's, it's hot. And you start counting the minutes. You say, <laughs> you're watching the eternal ping pong game. That the two, by the way, the two same staff sergeants have been playing since the Boer War. These two guys still playing ping pong back and forth. It goes, and you're just sitting there watching waiting for the Coke machine to start again. And before the Coke machine starts, are you aware that it, it quivers a little? Very exciting. And it goes G -g -g -g, a little bit. You say, now, now. <laughs> Here it goes. And then it doesn't do it. You get a little nervous. By the way, it's, it's cheating if you hit it. If you push it, you know, bump it, make it go. You wait. And sure enough, then it comes. <laughs> Good old Coke machine. <laughs> and then once in a while, somebody comes in and puts a dime in it, and the Coke comes out, which is very exciting. Because the Coke machine goes, gunk, gunk, You say, you watch, you know. And sure enough, the bottle comes out. He takes the bottle out. And then you say to him, this is the kind of stuff that you do in the Army, because you know in the Army... You work in boredom. You can feel it. You can hold it in your hands. You know, I brought a whole bag of it home. I sent some home to my mother once. You, know? you can feel it, you see. And so, one of the things you do with Coke machines, you sit there, and when the guy gets the bottle, you say to him, where's it from? Uh, wait a minute, don't look at it. Just a minute, let me guess. You know that in those days, the Coke bottles all had the name of a city on the bottom. Do you know that? Like it'd say Atlanta, or it would say Indianapolis. You say, wait a minute, let me guess. Hold it, hold it, let me guess. And this corporal is holding it. He said, all right, I'll guess. Let's put a half buck on it. Let's see who gets closest. Okay? I ain't looked at it. You say, uh, 
Oklahoma City. And he says, I'll guess uh, Miami. Then he looks at it. St. Louis. And then would start the, the argument, which was the closest. Well, that's the way you work your years in and years out, you know. You just work with Coke bottles and the sound of the Coke machine going, the sound of the Coke machine going off. And one day I'm sitting in the day room and a guy comes in. He says, hey, fellas. Hey, hey, wait a minute. Stop the game. Hey, listen. Did any of you guys hear about over in Area D they're bringing wax in? Wax. They're bringing wax into Area D. Well, I got up from the Coke machine. The two staff sergeants laid their paddles down. And all of us drifted out into the company street. And we started to go down towards Area D. By the way, Area D was known as the Hell Area. Area D, Area D had been the obstacle course and they had a tent city there. It was a real rough area. And so we all started to drift down. And within 15 minutes, there were at least 30,000 guys all just casually down at Area D. Well, come on. You know, PFCs, corporals, a couple of captains drifting through. And in these tents were actual girls. Actual girls wearing uniforms. Girls sitting there with hats on. We're walking past them. And we're wondering whether they used the same language. We wondered whether they were in the same army, you know. And somebody tried it, you know. Somebody hollers, Hey, uh, blah, blah, blah. They don't even flicker. And we know they're in it with us. <laughs> and so hour after hour, from that time on, all the time that I was in this camp, the whole camp would shift gradually towards Area D, immediately after retreat. And you'd wear, and, and by the way, nobody ever did anything. It was just called whack watching. <laughs> you'd go down and watch wax. You'd stand outside of their mess hall and watch them clean out the grease trap. <laughs> you know, professional viewing, you know. And once in a while, we'd, we'd try to peek in and talk to them. But they never talked. We just walked back and forth. And right now, somewhere, somewhere out in that dark void. This is WOR Radio, your station for news.